I was in a happy moment and a happy mind state when my phone rang. And then he came with such aggression and bitterness. And so once I hung up that phone, I was just like, this is not going to be my family. This is not going to be my legacy. This is not going to be what my kids will feel. My kids will never feel this feeling of lack. Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and the decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today I'm speaking with Rachelle Solomon, author of Little Banker Books and a money mompreneur. Welcome, Rachelle. Hi, thank you for having me so much. Thank you, thank you. So Rachelle, I was looking at your site and I'm very intrigued by your Little Banker book series, and I'm curious if you can, can you just talk a little bit about what what the goal and the aim of these books are? Yes, yeah, so I have a very, very big goal. <laughs> I want to teach a million kids financial literacy, and I know people throw out such big numbers all the time, but that's really my goal. I feel like if I could reach a million kids then I would have the opportunity to literally change a generation because I felt like whatever the kids learn, they would start passing on to their kids. And eventually, you know, that information could trigger down or go down and then start changing family trees. So that is my goal. So my goal is to just do that, you know, one kid at a time. And when did you realize that this was a problem, money and literacy with children? And I didn't have any, <laughs> and I didn't know, I didn't know how to um, maneuver around money. So I made the same kind of money mistakes normal twenty and thirty and almost forty year olds make. <laughs> I realized that if I had learned maybe even just a little bit more when I was younger, that some of those mistakes I made that I wouldn't have made them. They were just simple mistakes. I just didn't know any better. But when what your simple mistakes added up to about how much? Four hundred thousand dollars in debt. <laughs> sometimes I laugh Gosh. when I say that number. Sometimes I cry when I say that number. It just depends on how I feel that day. Um, <laughs> because yes, it was a very big mountain, and it wasn't anything. My debt wasn't very consumer daddy. You know, I didn't have like a hundred thousand dollars in credit cards where I bought you know, nice clothes and purses and stuff. It wasn't that at all. Honestly, it was just student loans and housing, you know, having my own mortgage and then having a car, had some medical bills. So there wasn't really nothing outlandish about my debt. It was just real debt, like real, I'm living a life and I'm trying to, you know, be successful and I'm trying to uh, provide for myself. It was just that kind of debt. And is it accurate to say you didn't have a lot of guidance from your family about money? I didn't. And it wasn't that, you know, my parents, they just worked. You know, they did the best they could with what they had. And they worked and they made money. And they, for the for the most part, they were a two-income household. As I got older, my dad got uh, disabled. But even then, I think he got like Social Security or something. So for the most part, my family have always been a two income family. They got married really young. And so there was money, 
but I still know that we were probably no higher than middle class. We were never, you know, at the top of, you know, at the top of middle class. We were always middle to lower middle class family. And they just didn't know to teach me. I don't think that in their minds, it was a conversation that you should have with kids because I'm sure that they didn't have that conversation with their parents. I'm sure there were some nuggets, some little things that their parents probably taught them, but nothing that actually translated down to teaching me or my sister or my brother about money. Mm -hmm. So when you were using your credit cards, did you have a sense of getting into a hole or did you kind of have blinders on? Oh, when I got my first credit card, I was like, 17, 18, you know, I was in college. I had to been like right at 18, maybe 19 at the utmost oldest age. (laughs) So (laughs) I had no concept of credit cards or how to make a payment or all I knew is I had a card and I could swipe it and buy the stuff I wanted. And then I had to pay some of it back. And, you know, even then it's like, well, I have like 600 bucks, but I only got to pay like $25 a month. (laughs) Had no concept of what interest was and having, you know, only paying $25, that meant nothing because my interest was going to be higher and I would pay 25 and then stack up, you know, 30 in interest. So it was like not paying anything, but I didn't understand any of that. All I knew is I got a free t-shirt to apply for this call. I got the card <laughs> and then I just racked up on it. <laughs> yeah, it is, is a really sweet trap, right? Yeah, yeah, really sweet trap. And did your siblings have similar experiences? Well, my sister, I'm not really sure. She's so much older than me that she, um, we didn't really talk about it a lot. But even now, she's way more financially responsible than I ever was. And so she, and I don't know if it's just because she's older, so it just appears that way to me when we were (laughs) growing up. But I also think because she met her, now her husband, in college. So, and like her sophomore year of college. And he came from a family where his family did talk to him a lot about money. And so I think a lot of his decisions rubbed off on her. He made a lot of their financial decisions because they've been together, like I said, since sophomore year of college, and now they're married. They've been married what, almost 20 years. So, so mm-hmm. yeah, so her reflection of who she has become is her learning from him, you know, the do's and the don'ts around money, and then them navigating it together as a two-income household. And then my younger brother he learned what he knows about money from me. So he had a lot of the same hiccups I had in the beginning. And then I was able to guide and steer him away from some of the mistakes you make in like your 20s and your late teens as far as credit cards and stuff. And actually, my brother doesn't have a credit score at all. He doesn't buy anything on credit ever. (laughs) So. So he took your message to heart. Yeah, he took it a little further than I had anticipated. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So what was your moment, your breaking point when you looked at your debt? And I don't know, how many years ago was this? It was almost seven years now. Okay, so take me to that moment or that that year when you looked at your debt and thought, huh, I've got to do something about this. 
Okay, so it's one thing to have the numbers on a piece of paper or on a spreadsheet in your computer. That's one thing. It's something completely different when people are calling you and asking you for payments and you don't have the money to pay them. So that is where I was when I had my breaking point. My son was about nine months old and he was laying on a couch and we were playing and he was having a moment and he was just laughing all over the place and the phone rang and I answered it. And there was this collector on there, I'll never forget. There was a, it was a man and he was just so mean and hurtful and he just said some very horrible things like, you know, I was a horrible person for having all this debt and not being able to pay it and he was going to do everything he could to throw me in jail and any money I ever made they were going to take it all and I wasn't going to have any money to provide for my family and I was just angry and I was frustrated and I was crying and I just hung the phone up in his face because I just felt like one he was being very rude and disrespectful and and two I had just, I was in a happy moment and a happy mind state when my phone rang and then he came with such aggression and bitterness. And so once I hung up that phone, I was just like, this is not going to be my family. This is not going to be my legacy. This is not going to be what my kids will feel. My kids will never feel this feeling of lack and you know, being unsure and not having the power to make a difference in their financial lives. And so that's actually the day I wrote the first book, the first children's book, because that was also the day I decided that I need to get my financial act together. Wow. So what was the story in that particular book? Because you're coming off of this new motherhood and this pretty aggressive phone call. So when you think back to that very first book, what was the feeling behind it when you were writing it? I still wanted to keep it fun, light, and eerie for my kid because I had went to the store to find a book and I was like, surely I could teach my kids some financial literacy, you know, using a book. I could just read a fun story and I couldn't find what I was looking for. Back then, I really don't think it existed. Not to the level that it exists now. Like I said, this was almost seven years ago. So I made it light and airy. It's about a little kid who's a little spoiled. He was used to getting things that he wanted. And then his parents cut him off. And so he has to learn how to become more responsible, one, with what he has, and then two, create more. So once he was able to create more, he stopped spending as much because he appreciated what he had. It's fascinating to me that you you got this message loud and clear on this day and then turned it into an actual project that you followed through with immediately. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Uh, sometimes yeah. I just get fired up. I'm a go I'm a go do it kind of person. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So, but I really, I was in tears. My son was still laughing and I'm in tears. And so that disconnect of how could I be upset when my baby's here and he's having a blast, you know, that I think that was more of a drive and then what was actually going on. I think really, I just didn't want him to feel how I felt at that moment. I really just wanted to shield him away from all of that. I wanted him to be as happy 
as, you know, he could be or he was in that moment. Yeah. So then how did you know you were onto something with the book? And then how many more did you write? So it's kind of a funny story. The first month after I wrote the first one, I ended up writing um, another 18 within that first three months. And I, I always remind people that children's books is really just one page. It's not like you're writing, you know, a, a big novel without the images and the drawings and stuff. You're really writing about one or two sheets of paper. So I had written 18 and they were all in this little brown envelope and I would just carry them around <laughs> when I was mm-hmm. going somewhere where I felt like, you know, people want might want to see the books. But how I knew that they were something is I took one out and read it to my son while we were visiting my uncle and my uncle was like, Oh my gosh, what is that? Where'd you get that? That's amazing. (laughs) You know what I mean? And he was like, you need to do something with that because I wrote the stories for my kids. Like I was just being selfish. I don't know if it's selfish or just, you know, I was protecting my child. (laughs) Yeah. So then you believed your uncle, you you know, because sometimes when our family tells us something, we don't believe them. But you believed him. Right. Yes, I did. Well, my uncle also had, um, he had like six kids. <laughs> so, and his his youngest kid now is just in high school. So I felt like he knew what he was talking about. <laughs> so what was the next step for you? The next step was trying to figure out how do I make this manuscript, these words on a piece of paper into a book. And so... I always say that God gives me breadcrumbs right when I need them. So what happened was there was this funny story. So I have these books and they're written and they're in an envelope. And then I get a phone call from a lady that I really respect. I call her my play mom. And she's like, I'm going to this class at this church. And I think you should come with me. And I was like, a class at a church? She was like, yeah, you'll see when you get there. So there was a lady at the, that went to this church and she was a published author and she was really, really close friends with a editor who worked at a publishing company. So, and they're not like self-published. They were like actually published through, mm-hmm. you know, the system of publishing companies. So she taught a class. It was like, I want to think 10 weeks of how to write a book. <laughs> so mm-hmm. every week we would go and learn something new. So I always say I get the breadcrumbs right when I need it because as soon as I decided I wanted to turn this book into a book and not just, you know, stories I read to my kids, I learned how. Now, learning the information and doing the process is not the same. The first book took about two years to go from the... Um, the words to a physical book with images that you can, you know, turn pages and stuff. But now, and I don't want people to get discouraged when they hear that. The first one, there was a big learning curve for me. And then, you know, creating connections with people, because when you're doing a book, you have to find an editor, then you have to find an illustrator, then you have to get covers and there's things you have to have photo shoots for pictures. And so there was like mm-hmm. all these moving components that I didn't know anything about when I started. But now I can publish a book in like three, three months two 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 and a half months, depending on the kind of book. So once you get your swing, it's it gets a lot easier. 
the books came out for the first time how many years ago then? Now it's been about four, four years. Okay. And so I have to ask then, how did you get out of debt? <laughs> okay. So that's a completely different story. <laughs> I mean, okay. So don't get me wrong. While I was working on the books, I was also working on the debt. So these are two journeys going on at the same time and one constantly motivated the other. And that's another kind of, when I say breadcrumbs, this is a diff- I don't know what I would call me getting out of debt, but it was like that breadcrumb theory. Every time I got to a place where I felt like nothing was changing, something would happen and it would push me a little further. Like I did get a job, a part-time job at Uber. And this is before Uber was in every song. And this is before, (laughs) you know, there were like a thousand drivers a night. This was when, you know, you were lucky if there was 50 drivers a night. So I was making a ton of money doing that. And it was, it was really, really good money. And so when I started, I had to make hard decisions and I say very hard decisions because I had bought a house when I was in my twenties that my kids never got to live in. So the first hard decision was admitting that I couldn't afford the house and renting it out for a while. The second hard decision was selling the house. So just selling the house that wiped out like almost $2,000, $200,000. I'm sorry. In debt. So when people hear that, they're like, oh, you only really got rid of $200,000 in debt, not $400,000. i am like, yeah, but to own a house that you bought in your early 20s, a big four-bedroom, and then decide to give it up, and your kids hadn't even lived there yet. And the reason I bought it yeah. was because, you know, people told me, oh, you're out of college now, so you should buy a house, and then you raise your family there. So my intentions was always to raise my family in a house and I haven't, and I haven't yet. So that's a goal. (laughs) And we're actually talking about building next year. So that's one. So I sold my house. I paid off my car. I, like I said, I was working Uber. So I just started paying off stuff. I got the cheapest one bedroom apartment I could get so that, you know, my, my income wasn't, going out to all my just regular bills, like my light bill or my water bill and stuff. I made sure to keep that those bills as cheap as possible. Like, don't touch my AC. Don't touch my heat. It's on 70. Don't touch. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like you had to get really mindful. You had to get really specific about everything you chose to do. I did. Um, I ate at my mom's house, even though I had my own kitchen. <laughs> Because I didn't want to buy groceries. Wait, did she know that that's what you were doing? (laughs) She knew exactly what I was doing. I went a little radical on my budget. I did, don't get me wrong, I was structured. I did create a budget. I did take the Dave Ramsey class. I wasn't all the way on board, but I took it. And then when I did, I realized that there was a lot of information I really already knew. I just wasn't implementing. So it just gave me like... um, 
people, like-minded people to be around because, you know, I, I was still, I was in my, you know, my young thirties. So my friends want to go out and do stuff. And so I had to find people who were okay with just watching movies at home or eating at home or, you know what I mean? What is the Dave Ramsey class? Yes. What is that? Okay. So Dave Ramsey has these seven steps. And so it's like a program that he has where you, um, churches and, and different places actually do it for him now where he is video recordings and you watch the recordings and then you do the worksheets. And so each week is a different lesson. So there's a budgeting lesson. There's um, a couple's lesson. So if you're married, it talks about how to communicate and talk about money with your spouse. There's an insurance lesson. So there's like seven different lessons. And then he has these baby steps that you're supposed to follow after you get done. And so step one is save $1,000 in emergency fund. Step two is get out of debt. And step three is like save for a house. So he has like all these steps. So it's like seven steps. So I haven't, I didn't do his program. I did the program and I watched the videos and I listened, you know, to what they were saying, but it wasn't anything I really didn't already know. It was just, I wasn't doing it. And so when I did it, when I started, it was at the beginning of my program and my church was offering it. And so I thought, okay, well, maybe this is something I need to do. Maybe there's something I don't know. You know, maybe I can learn from this. And then when I did it, I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's it's, like a a theme, though. It it seems almost like uh, you have to pay attention to it. You have to you have to be mindful, as I said before, but you have to pay attention to the subject of money in your life if you want to make it what you want it to be, right? Right. And I think that's like you really can't what it just does. Yeah. And the moment of you talk about the moment of realizing, well, I don't know if it was a moment, but you know, that that decision to sell your house, that that was a really big that was a really big decision, right? I mean that Oh that, yes. Oh my gosh, you don't understand. Like in my in my family, I was one of the youngest people that owned a house, and so, and my grandma, who I loved so much, she came and visited me when I bought the house, and she told me how proud I was. And by then, she had passed away, and so it was kind of one of those things where it has so many sentimental moments that. I didn't know if I could go through it selling it, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Well, it sounds like it meant something to you. It's not just a house. It was. It meant something about who you were. Right. And so, yeah, so to, to part with it meant something also about who you were, right? Right. Yeah, and I, like I, I had owned it for 10 years. It wasn't like I had it for a year or two. <laughs> <laughs> when I sold it, I had owned it for 10 years. So there was a lot of memories and, and stuff, and it had really become a part of who I was. And then I, I just let it go, but I felt like I let it go for the greater good. Like having, not having to worry about how I was going to pay that mortgage. Even though at that point I was renting it out, my tenants wasn't paying the mortgage, the full 100% of the mortgage, and they weren't always on time. So I was just like, it's still a stress factor, even though, even though I felt like I was doing what I could do, it was still a stress factor. So the easiest way to remove the stress was just to get rid of the house. 
And did you feel did you feel the the burden lift at all when you did? Oh my gosh, it was such a relief. Like when it was finally done, and it takes like two or three months after you sell a house to realize that it's gone. <laughs> People's <laughs> like, okay, that last payment should seal it for you. It's like, no, the last payment didn't seal it for me. It was like two or three months later, and I was like, oh wow, okay, I can. I can move. I can breathe. <laughs> yeah. I have this extra money I can use to pay down some debt, you know? <laughs> yeah. it's Yeah. It's like an energy suck, right? Like the energy kind of just lifted from that area that was stressful. Right. So you you start publishing these books and, and now you are also a speaker. You You mm-hmm. speak to children and you educate them. So talk a little bit about your work helping children in schools and and, in programs where you go? Yeah, so what I do is I go around the country and I speak to students in schools. And I usually go in on like an an author appreciation day or some other, you know, kind of day like that, Dr. Seuss Day, and or like April is Financial Literacy Month. So I'll go in and I just, I talk to kids and I felt like going through the school route was the easiest way to get to my number, you know, that million, that million kids. Mm-hmm. So when I go to a class, you know, it's always going to be at least 20 kids, 15 kids, somewhere around there to up to 60 kids. And sometimes I go from class to class to class, or sometimes I'll do it in a gymnasium or, or wherever, the cafeteria. And I teach. We talk about, first I usually read a book, because kids like that. <laughs> and we mm-hmm. talk about the lesson in the book, and then I expand on the conversation. So sometimes we'll talk about, you know, how do you get money? Who gives you money? You know, and the answers are usually parents or grandparents. Then we talk about what do they do with the money? Do you put it in a piggy bank or do you spend it? You know, how do you decide how much you keep, how much you spend? So we just really have conversations about it. And then I ask them, it depends if they're a little older. I've done workshops with teenagers where we talked about investing and the stock market and that kind of stuff. Like, how do you... You know, do you know what a start market is? Do you know what it means when you have the red or, you know, so we just, we talk and it's very impersonal. It's not like this is what we're teaching and this is what we're learning. And this is, I love for the kids to be a true part of the conversation. And so it's funny because I've taught in rooms where there were teenagers and there's some parents sitting in the room and I have to clarify, okay, parents, this is a no talk song for you. <laughs> I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to your kids. And I've even went as far as to separate the kids from the parents and say, okay, teens, you all guys come to the front and the, and the parents, you guys go in the back. Because, <laughs> because I really want the kids to be comfortable answering the questions and not being concerned about you know what their parents might be whispering to them as far as the answers are concerned. I want them to give me their um, their honest, you know, thoughts, ask me their questions and stuff. It's amazing because when I do it with like middle school kids and high school kids, I always get pulled to the side after I get done so mm-hmm. that they can ask me more questions that they didn't want to say out loud, either in front of the group 
or in front of their parents. Mm. What do you what do you get surprised by or what surprised you early on when you started speaking with kids? One, they're very intelligent. They know a lot more than parents give them credit for. And I say parents because I'm a parent, but just people in general when it comes to any topic, like their ability to understand. You know, they can ask decent questions where you can explain an answer and they can digest the answer. But I think the first thing that really, really got me, the first time I went to a classroom, a little girl was like, looked at me. She's like, oh my God, she's on that book. She's the author. Hmm. And that that moment like really tore at my heartstrings. <laughs> and it still feeds me. It still makes me want to go back and do more. Like just the fact that she was so happy because they got the book like a week before I got there. Mm-hmm. And so they had already read it like a couple of times. And so for her to recognize me and then be so excited that I was in the classroom, it, it just brought joy to me. Yeah. Do you feel like you've become the person that you would have wanted to be? I actually feel like I have. And I don't know if it's the person that I thought I was going to be when I was younger. Like, you know, when you say, when I grow up, what I want to be. But I feel like I'm the person that I decided I wanted to become after I got that phone call and was like, I want to protect my kids. Yeah. And I mean, when you look back on that moment from having a nine-month-old and and being so racked by that phone call to where you are now, what is your main impression of what you've done? Honestly, I feel like I've been making an impact, not only because I know that kids love the books, but because my own personal kids, they're in a place now where they're talking about money openly and we have conversations that are at the level of older kids. And so I feel like it's just going to grow. And I use them as my sounding board as to what I should teach and what's appropriate at what age. It helps guide me as I continue this journey of teaching other people's kids about money. What do you think is the main problem? Like, what do you think is the main problem when, when parents are raising their children with the lack of or the the conversations around money? Well, I think that a lot of it is stemmed in the fact that most adults 38 or older or 35 or older didn't really get it as a a kid either. They didn't get the money talk as a kid. They may have gotten it as a teenager. And even the people I find that are really good with money, whose parents did probably teach them about it, didn't tell them, make sure you teach your kids too. So I feel like a lot of adults feel like maybe it's an adult question or an adult conversation, one. And two, they don't know what's going to stem from the conversation. Meaning if I talk to my kids about money, are they going to ask me for money? I don't have any money to give them right now. (laughs) You know what I mean? That kind of stuff. (laughs) So I think there's even the parents that want to do it don't necessarily know how or when, or what to say. I think for me, like, I I think no one really had the talk with me growing up. And um, I think I also have this idea that you just learn it through osmosis. Right. You know, it's just going to be something you understand when you get older. Right. And it's not. 
Right. And I think that's honestly, that is how the majority of people feel. It's like my kid will learn these lessons as they get older and it'll be a part of their life. But really what should be happening is as you're going through things as an adult, you should be using your real life opportunities to teach them about money. So going to the grocery store, going to the bank, going to pay your rent, all of these are teaching moments for your kids because, you know, telling your kids turn off the light or turn off the water, but they don't understand it. It's connected to a bill that you have to pay every month. You know, then they're like, why? I'm, I'm still using that. But you're not using that because you're not in that room. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. So we have gotten money statements from parents, but we didn't get the explanation behind the statement. And I think that's the part that we're missing is the behind the statement part. And what about vulnerability around money? How can parents approach feeling worried about money themselves around their children? What should they or shouldn't they discuss with their kids? So it, that is a age-based question. So when when you're in a place like I was, where you feel the lack of and there's emotions connected to it, use positive language to explain to your kids that we don't always have it. Don't don't shame them, don't guilt them because it's not their fault that we don't have it. Even though they've asked you a thousand times to buy this cereal that costs five more dollars mm-hmm. for no apparent reason than the other cereal. <laughs> you know what I mean? You have to find, I always say find a positive way to say no. <laughs> like I'll give you an example. Mm-hmm. Let's say your kid does ask you for the, for that cereal again, and you've told them no a hundred times and you really just want to buy it, but you don't have the money. Tell them, you know, as soon as mommy can buy it, we will buy it. And then that gives them hope for, for the future. You didn't say no. You didn't say, we don't have the money right now for that because there is a language, there's a money language. And in a household where you have kids, it should always be positive. Even when you're saying something like no, it should always be positive. So if they, uh, cereal or toys or whatever it is, it's not the messaging you're saying should not be, we don't have the money for that or we can't afford that. Right. Or they should at least understand that, okay, because my kids, we have priority conversations about money. So what I will ask them is, what's more important? Do you want this cereal or do you want, and then I'll name something else. I'll give you an example. My son's birthday is on Saturday, but we're not doing a birthday party because we are going to Disney. Uh, next week, actually. So when I asked him what he wanted for his birthday, he wanted to go to Disney, right? So we had a priority conversation. I said, do you want to have a birthday party or do you still want to go to Disney? And he said he wanted to go to Disney because that's more important to him than having a birthday party. So with that being said, I just, you know, like you have to give your kids choices when it comes to money and 
you know, sometimes you you can't say, do you want to have a birthday party or Disney? Both of those things are extravagant in some people's eyes when you're, but I wasn't always in that position. You know what I mean? So it used to be, you know, do you want this cereal or do you want a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? Like those were your choices. Like, <laughs> Right. But it sounds like there's a decision quality, like there's a choice quality in the conversation. So there's there's a power in their hands type of feeling. Right. Exactly. And that's the thing. Like you have to still give them that feeling of of power in order for them to cope Mm. with lack like and I I have a book called um just what Alex needs I just finished it and I have a audio version out and then the published version should be coming out soon but this is not a plug this is directly related to this question because I guess it could be a plug because (laughs) yeah but I also want you to plug in a minute you're gonna plug it plug everything (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, in the book, his he asks, he's always asking for stuff because he has a friend who makes, whose family has a lot of money. And so he's always asking for stuff and usually whatever the friend just got. But his mom was like, you know, we, we can't do that. Or they'll say no. But then they'll say, well, let's make your favorite dessert tonight or let's cook dinner tonight or let's play a board game tonight. So there is free ways to to tell a child no but still encourage them in a positive way yeah yeah so that because i think that's the thing money can be so mysterious and you can grow up thinking some people have it some people don't how do i even get there but if you kind of show someone a kid for example that there is power in their decision and their choices and that they have some autonomy it seems like that they grow into that belief and ability to create what they need right Right, right. And then as I get older, I mean, I started teaching my kids at one and two that money goes in the bank. We would just play money scavenger hunt and they would take the change that they find and stick it in their piggy bank. And then as they got older, we went from the piggy bank to a real bank. So for them, you know, then they understood that a bank wasn't just really their piggy bank. It was a bank like an institution. So I, you know, just using simple phrases like that you know, taught them um, the concept of savings. And then there was the concept, my son asked me, mommy, I don't like, he said, I don't like going to the bank. I was like, why you don't like going to the bank? He's like, because whenever we go there, we can't get no money out of it. I was like, yeah, mm-hmm. we can. It's called a withdrawal. So then that was a learning, a teaching opportunity for me and a learning opportunity for him. So then we went and we did a withdrawal and then we took the money and he went to Chuck E. Cheese and, and spent it. So I want, parents to realize that not only can you teach your kids, but you can teach them a balance and you can give it to them in simple little bites. It's not, money is not a conversation where you sit at a table and say, Hey, we're going to do this two hour lecture about money. It's (laughs) just five and 10 minute opportunities for you to explain something. Yeah. That's really, that, that makes it sound very feasible for a lot of people and more interesting for a kid. Right. Right. (laughs) So, okay. So where can people find you? Direct us to where we can find your stuff. Okay. So go to mylittlebanker.com. That's mylittlebanker.com. And that is where my books are held. That's where you can find more information out about me. 
there's a blog there. Well, it'll send you to my blog because my blog's on my other website, RachelSolomon.com. But I just send everybody to mylittlebanker.com because it's so much easier. And then um, now we have a podcast coming out called Podcast Kids. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. It's Podcast Kids. Yes, it's Podcast Kids. <laughs> and we just teach, um, I teach simple money lessons for parents. And my kids are on there a lot, actually, where we have discussions about money stuff. And I wanted to do that. I wanted to bring the kids in because I wanted kids to listen to the show and I wanted them to hear it, you know, from an adult perspective, but also from a kid's perspective and then be able to learn from it. And I keep the shows really short. They're around 15 minutes or so because I wanted the kids to listen and not get bored. That's going to be great. Um, Okay. So, and then I will also link to everything on the, and then everything changed podcast website And Rachel, this was a really, really great conversation. I'm so glad that you were able to to come on my my show and and share what you've learned. Oh, yes. Thank you so much for having me. Elia, and have a surprise. (laughs) Anyone who comes on the website and decides to purchase a book, if you use the um, promo code and then, A-N-D-T-H-E-N, and then, you will get a 10% discount for um, listening. Oh, that's great. <laughs> that's so nice. That's a really nice surprise. That's my first surprise of that nature. <laughs> Thank you, Rachelle. Okay, yeah, it was so, so good to talk with you. And I can't wait to check out your podcast and, and all that. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more information on this episode, photos, community discussion, and other episodes, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can also find And Then Everything Changed on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe, rate, and review. Thanks for listening.